0: Early in this pandemic, someone I knew contracted COVID, and although this person was in excellent physical shape for months afterwards, he couldn't walk up a flight of stairs or exert himself without getting winded. Those lingering effects are now called long COVID. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Inez Jabal Perwala, who's based in Montreal, where she's the global director of Vynex an organization that studies how viruses affect brain health. Surveys have shown that anywhere from 10 to 30% of COVID survivors suffer from long COVID, meaning that already 5% of the workforce may be affected. There's also a long list of both physical and psychological symptoms associated with long COVID, including brain fog, chronic fatigue, sleep issues, headaches, too many to name here. And that's part of what makes it so hard to diagnose, and also why, like many other chronic illnesses, long COVID often gets written off as psychosomatic or imagined. One of my key takeaways is that many people who survived COVID may be done with the virus, but long COVID means that even if infection rates decline, many people will still suffer in a way that's going to affect our healthcare system, our labor force, our mental health, and much more. As always, the interview is edited for Clarity and Brevity. Inez, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk to me today.
1: Thank you, Gabe. It's a pleasure for me to be here.
0: Yeah, well, basically from the beginning of this pandemic, almost from the beginning, I heard people talking about something called long COVID. What are some of the symptoms of long COVID? So
1: I'll start by saying that we don't have a concise definition of long COVID and we don't have a single test or valid tools for diagnosing long COVID. So we most frequently are using the World Health definition of uh, long COVID, which is occurring in individuals with a history of probable or confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection, usually three months from the onset of COVID-19, with symptoms that last for at least two months and can't be explained by an alternative diagnosis. The most common symptoms are fatigue, shortness of breath, and cognitive dysfunction, which we've been calling brain fog. But there are more than 200 symptoms that have been associated with long COVID. You know, I've met with many people living with long COVID and the symptoms are months and even years out. So we're really looking at a phenomena that can have impact in the short medium and long term going into the future.
0: Whoa. And have we learned anything about who's contracting these symptoms or, or what the causes are?
1: Unfortunately, that's a big question. And what we have estimated is that 10 to 30 percent of people who survive COVID-19 are living with long COVID. So in Canada, that represents about 1.2 million people. And globally, we're looking at upwards of 175 million people. Um, And it's a real phenomenon, which took us some time to arrive at, because in the early days, either one only received a COVID-19 test when one presented at a hospital or a clinic, and therefore we haven't really counted those people when they later present with long COVID, or there was a sense that maybe this was just imagined or just a convergence of different types of symptoms that were all being bucketed together um, and called long COVID. Uh, We also know that uh, women, uh, particularly middle-aged women, face a greater risk of developing long COVID symptoms. And there have been numerous studies on this now. One found that women are 22% more likely to develop long COVID than men. Another found that women have a four to one uh, ratio over men and that they account for about 60 to 80% of cases that present in clinic. Um, And and one of the things that's interesting about that is there's been a history of women who present with diseases and illnesses which are difficult to diagnose and difficult to see and they're not really believed. And I think that was part of the obstacle in the beginning that uh, it took a while before people started to believe that long covid is actually real and that this is a phenomena that is impacting a large number of people. So in terms of understanding what causes it, there have been a lot of hypotheses, you know, ranging from microclots in the lungs to the virus lingering somewhere to the immune system, but there's, there's basically four that I think have been the most uh, um, prevalent. One is that the virus somehow finds its way in other parts of the body, and so it's affecting other parts of the human system. The second is that uh, there's some kind of an autoimmune response that gets triggered. So the immune system begins to attack its own cells and tissues by mistake, and so that causes this, this constellation of, of effects on the immunity. And then there's a a suggestion that perhaps the virus somehow awakens latent viruses that are already in the system. So you may already be living with a virus that is not active, and then COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 reactivates that virus. And finally, that maybe there's inflammation or some kind of damage that just can't be repaired, and it causes some kind of chronic change in the tissue. So these are just four of the ones that are most frequently cited. But as I said, we still are a long way from understanding exactly what causes a long COVID and who is more likely to be impacted and whether vaccinations, for example, will have an impact on that.
0: What you just described is really terrifying because, I mean, you just listed four different things, all of which are quite different. Between those four things you mentioned, is there a leading contender for what may be causing this?
1: No. And, and I will tell you that my focus has really been on the brain. So obviously, I lean towards understanding neuroinflammation and looking at potential triggers to neurodegenerative diseases down the line. So that to me is really worrisome because we tend to think about pandemic-related issues in a particular time frame. And so my biggest concern is that we don't do longitudinal studies. And if we don't do longitudinal studies, we will not have the ability to track what happens to people down the line because a disease trigger is not just going to happen in the first few months. It's going to manifest over a longer time horizon. So that to me is what we, where we really need to think about the long term.
0: You just said we don't do longitudinal studies. So
1: we do longitudinal studies, but in the case of COVID, what I worry about is that we're looking at long COVID because we do need immediate answers and there are short-term impacts. But we have a window where we have a, a population that has been infected by the same virus in roughly the t- same time frame, And so we can study this population over a long period. But sometimes what happens is if we don't invest now and putting the infrastructure to do these longitudinal studies, we lose that cohort. And so we are not able then to find out exactly what happens to them down the line. So I'm really advocating for saying, yes, there's things that we need to understand today, but we really need to understand what's going to happen in the middle and long terms, because those could have really dramatic implications on our society.
0: When people go over the symptoms, dizziness, brain fog, inability to exert yourself, chronic fatigue, sleep issues, headaches, Maybe everyone has experienced one or more of these at some point in their life temporarily. But in terms of what you're talking about, the medium and long-term consequences of this, do we have any sort of theories about how this is going to stay with us and affect our understanding of this pandemic?
1: So if we're thinking about, you know, in general, viral infections, and I can speak about their relationship to brain. And and by the way, uh, most of the, the symptoms that you've listed are neurological or psychiatric, and and that's why brain is such an important part of this story. But there have been many studies about the connection between viral infections and the onset of different neurological and psychiatric disorders. And we know that under the right conditions, viruses can migrate to the central nervous system. This happens with HIV, with Japanese encephalitis, with influenza, with others. And I should note that just because a virus actually makes it to the central nervous system doesn't mean that it's causing harm. You know, that's the second part of understanding that. But viruses have also been shown to have an indirect impact, and that's the inflammatory and immune processes that I've described And we also know that they may be triggers for certain types of neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's, and MS. And the most compelling study um, that was recently conducted looked at 10 million active-duty U.S. military personnel between 1993 and 2013. They were specifically looking for a link between the Epstein-Barr virus and multiple sclerosis. And what they found was with 801 people who tested, who developed MS, Out of those cases, only one did not have the Epstein-Barr virus in their last sample collected before they developed MS. And so what they have concluded and calculated is that people infected with Epstein-Barr virus are 32 times more likely to develop MS than in uninfected people. And in addition to that, a pandemic that impacts brain health is, is not unprecedented. We've seen this elevated risk of Parkinson's following outbreaks from the Spanish flu to HIV, West Nile, Japanese encephalitis. And we've looked at this going even back to the Russian flu of 1889 to 1892. So there are consequences to pandemics that do linger. And what's different today is that we actually have the ability to conduct much more robust longitudinal studies and to use analytical tools like AI and machine learning to be able to analyze that data and be able to derive knowledge from that more meaningfully than some of the previous studies, which were done obviously 100 years ago, were were largely observational.
0: From what you're saying, it sounds like, from looking at other viral infections, we know that they can lead to this spike in future other illnesses. Which sounds like it has implications for our healthcare system that we know that COVID strained our emergency rooms and our hospitals, but that that may just have been sort of the tip of the iceberg that we may need to sort of see this as a long term issue where our hospitals will be treating a higher percentage of the population.
1: Well, and when we look at what, uh, the pandemic exposed about long-term care facilities, if we multiply that and think about the consequences of a pandemic that is now going to accelerate rates of certain neurodegenerative diseases, if that happens, you know, we have to start thinking about that now. And, And so I think, you know, there's a whole constellation of things that happen at the same time. And I think that if we don't start to ask those questions and invest in the research that needs to happen, we are going to find ourselves again caught out. And, you know, we talk a lot about pandemic preparedness, and this is central to preparing for the next pandemic.
0: Yeah, preparedness. The pandemic has shown uh, time and again that it doesn't take much to overwhelm our hospitals. And so long COVID, it seems like, may be a reason to recalibrate or rethink how we invest in healthcare.
1: Uh, absolutely, but also how we how we address prevention so that we're not in the healthcare system. You know, because part of the challenge is that a lot of people with long COVID are not part of the healthcare system. They didn't present at hospital. 75% of people with long COVID never presented at a hospital. That was the initial issue around getting numbers because early on, you only got a COVID test if you presented at a hospital or a clinic with symptoms. So if you didn't present at a hospital or a clinic, there's no record that you had COVID. And so you're thinking you might have long COVID, but it's very difficult when you don't have that diagnosis. You know, it's, it's part of the challenge too is who are the people who fall under the radar because they're not sick enough to be at a hospital, perhaps initially, and and yet develop something that continues on. And, you know, I heard stories from people who said they were basically told just be happy or not dead and, you know, go away, <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, early on, the, the, the system was overwhelmed, and they were trying to keep people alive, so, you know, fair enough, but but that was the response that I've got, you know, that you're still alive, so, you know, it's too bad that you're not feeling well, but other people are dying, and I think when we get to that point where that's the message we have to give back, you're absolutely right, it points to a capacity issue, and, and you know, having a, Clinics that are specifically for long COVID is one way to relieve the system. They're not all showing up at the hospital, but they actually have designated clinics where they can go. The UK has done that. The US has done that. It is possible to set up a network of clinics across the country. Yes, there's a cost to it, but you know, think about the value um, if you can get people back you know on their feet and back you know to their 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 pre-pandemic lives
0: i mean part of the premise of our healthcare system too is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of treatment or something
1: yes and it, i mean and it is true about the healthcare system in terms of costs but you know a lot of what we've done in our surveys is is calculating other types of impacts and so maybe they're not just the cost of the healthcare system they're the fact that A person, you know, is no longer able to provide for their family, or they're no longer able to care for their loved ones, or they're no longer able to do anything that brings them joy. Um, Or, you know, the, the the interview that came out in the CTV a couple of weeks ago about a woman who wanted assisted, you know, suicide because she felt economically she could no longer continue because long COVID had prevented her from being able to work, and her finances were and being drained. I mean, that's terrible when you get to that point And, you know, people are feeling like there's no point in living because I can't, I can't do anything to actually be a part of society anymore.
0: Yeah. I don't want to gloss over the suffering that long COVID can cause in people's lives. Do you find ways to stay optimistic?
1: I guess my my concern is that, you know, we tend to be very focused on the news cycle. And so right, you know, at the point where long COVID really got a lot of attention, there was much more interest in trying to do something. And then, you know, I'm concerned. I You know, I saw that the chief science advisor announced a task force, you know, and, and again, it's more, let's bring people together and think about what to do. And there's no commitment, really, when you read between the lines to actually doing something with dollars. And so what I worry about is are we just sort of waiting this out and hoping that, you know, it's off the radar and then we don't really have to do much um, except maybe put something together that looks like a plan and put it on the shelf. And and that's my fear. I, I think that if, if we are only concerned as long as this is on the radar, we're not going to be prepared for the next pandemic because we're not even dealing with the current pandemic and, you know, and the brain health impacts. Do worry me because I think that probably what was observed in previous viral pandemics was at a time where maybe this, the, you know, there just weren't the tools and the technology available to do the kind of analysis that we need to have. And that maybe if we can do that, we might actually uncover something about what actually triggers some of these diseases. You know, genetics, direct genetics only accounts for 1% of Alzheimer's the rest of it is all based on you know gene environment interplay and other factors, lifestyle. But you know the environment is so is a huge issue now, and you know the intersection between the environment and health is you know is is going to be, I think, the big story of the future you know as we start to it's it's hard enough to intersect all the parts of the human system. We now have to think about the fact that the human system is impacted by the environment, and that you know, SARS-CoV-2 is not the first zoonotic virus, and it won't be the last because we're encroaching on ecosystems. We're having more interaction with animals, and you know, this is what happens. These are the types of viruses then that jump from animals to humans. So there's, you know, there's there's a bigger story that I think a lot of people don't want to deal with because it is so complex. But if we can learn something from this pandemic, we actually have a virus where we have enough people to study this well. You know, maybe we're going to get some insights into what's causing many of these neurodegenerative diseases for which we have very little understanding and no understanding about what actually causes them or triggers them.
0: Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. So there are opportunities to learn a lot because you had mentioned that we don't know exactly who it affects that there's preliminary data which shows it disproportionately affects women and women also tend to face problems in terms of convincing healthcare providers that their symptoms are real. In this way, I guess long COVID is similar to other chronic illnesses which are complex to diagnose because they're a mix of physical and, and psychological symptoms. Has long COVID helped raise awareness in the healthcare system about this issue?
1: Yes. I mean, when, you know, there's there's quite a movement around chronic fatigue syndrome and looking at, you know, how that's impacted women. But even if you look at the whole history of mental health care and, you know, women in, in an era where they really weren't believed and they were considered to be hysterical or hypochondriac. And I think that, you know, there's still elements of that that exist when we have a disease or an illness where It's not easy to see, or we can't see it at all, and we don't know what it is, and all we can do is put a label on it, but we don't actually have a diagnosis for it. We sometimes think, well, maybe these people are exaggerating. And then when you're dealing with something where there is complexity, because there are so many different symptoms, it's difficult to decide, how do we treat this person? And the way our healthcare system is organized, we treat one area. So, you know, one would present with a respiratory illness and see somebody around a respiratory treatment plan, except that what if they have neurological issues and maybe that connection has not been made because the question was never asked and they're never going to see a neurologist. And so that's why the idea of multi-care clinics has emerged, that we need long COVID care clinics that actually deal with the whole person and can address the different dimensions of long COVID. And that is what people with lived experience have been asking for, because it is the only way for them to get the kind of holistic treatment that is going to put them on a positive trajectory forward.
0: It does seem that long COVID is so terrifying in part because it shines a light on a weakness in our medical system, just in how difficult it is to diagnose. I guess it's fair that long COVID May provide more reasons for us to recalibrate or rethink how we invest in healthcare.
1: Yes, and I, you know, and I think the the bigger challenge in healthcare is that the human system is interconnected, and you know, we treat it in part, but you know, what happens in one part can affect another part, and and the whole the whole premise for the formation of VineX um, was Ken Irving, who said you know, this is a respiratory virus, but there is a history of, 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 of viruses that may actually migrate to the central nervous system, and the respiratory virus may not stay in the respiratory system. And that's exactly the issue, that we have to start thinking about how the whole human body is impacted when there's a disruption to one part of that system. And in terms of the way we approach healthcare, we have to start to look more at what are some of those connections? What are the correlations? You know, where where do we see that there could be comorbidity? And, and it, of course, adds to the complexity in an already overburdened healthcare system. But in, it's the only way to address an, an illness like long COVID.
0: What kinds of treatments are, are emerging for this?
1: So, you know, most frequently an anti-inflammatory is prescribed to deal with the inflammation and antivirals. So, you know, there is a bit of trial and error. And then there are other types of rehabilitation, you know, for, for other aspects of the virus. And the problem is that until we have a diagnostic test and we can really be clear about what long COVID is, it's very difficult to have a treatment plan that is developed that is going to work for the entire population of people who are living with long COVID. So I think, you know, we have to first get at that definition and the diagnostic, and then we can start to figure out, you know, what is the optimal treatment plan for people who are living with long COVID?
0: I've also seen articles that mention long COVID and the mental health crisis in the same sort of sentence. What is the actual connection there?
1: So we need to separate what is a pandemic-related mental health crisis. And that is due to a number of factors, including the anxiety, the social isolation that has been a consequence of being in a pandemic. Long COVID is directly linked to the virus itself. So that's where the virus has entered the system and is either directly or indirectly impacting your health, your brain health. And while there are some psychiatric illnesses linked to long COVID, that is directly as a result of the virus. And so they are two different things. Now, of course, there's going to be overlap, and it's, and it's difficult to separate that overlap when we're counting numbers of people, for example, who present with mental health issues. But it is important to recognize that they are different, and that when we're studying uh, long COVID and the psychiatric impact, we're really studying the virus and how that has impacted the health. Uh, when we're looking at the mental health crisis, we are looking more broadly at what's happened in society as a consequence of being in a pandemic. But I think when we're looking at the mental health crisis, um, we should think more broadly about brain health. And I hope that one of the things this pandemic has really surfaced is how much we depend on our brain health and our brain functioning. And keeping that brain healthy is linked to being productive at the workforce and being able to be a part of your daily life at your full optimal capacity. And so we need to start thinking more broadly about brain health. How do we prevent? Uh, the onset of certain illnesses or diseases, so that if we're faced with another crisis, our resiliency is much better and we are able to uh, cope with some of the impacts of of what we've experienced these last few years.
0: And I have to imagine that all this must have an effect on the workforce, but we only have estimates of how many people have this. Do we have any sense of what the impact is on our workforce or on our economy, on our healthcare system, the cost and things like that?
1: Well, I mean, the United States has calculated the cost of long COVID to be at least $2.6 trillion. But I think, you know, more relevant to the work question, the Bank of England is suggesting that, you know, the record high share of people that are aged between 16 and 64 or outside of the workforce now because of long term sickness is likely due to long COVID. So, you know, there's really a recognition that long COVID is having an impact. In Canada, We partnered with the COVID Long Hauler Support Group Canada and Neurological Health Charities Canada, and we conducted two surveys of people with lived experience, one in June of 2021 and one in May of 2022. And what we found was that a 1,000 Canadians who responded who are living with long COVID, over 70% said they had to take a leave from work as a result of long COVID, sometimes for over a year. And some had to leave the workforce altogether and have never returned. So it's the numbers are quite dramatic. You know, one of the issues that we don't talk as much about, because we think about people who have had to leave the workforce or who are absent, but it's this idea of presenteeism. And so people who are going to work, but they're not being able to produce at the, their previous levels. And, you know, a lot of this is linked to what's happening around this idea of brain capital, that, you know, the brain in a knowledge-based economy, is our asset. And so if that asset is compromised, it absolutely has an impact on our ability at the workplace to be creative, to be resilient, you know, to contribute our our full brain function. And, And there's another sort of more insidious impact that is linked to presenteeism, and that's employees who just can't afford to stop working even though they should be taking time off work. They just economically are not able to. They're only paid if they are at work. And then there are the frontline workers who can't leave work because there are labor shortages. And so they are having to come back to work while they're still living with long COVID. And it's not just that this is, you know, exhausting for them, but this has an impact that on further aggravating their long COVID. And so they may be getting sicker as a consequence of being pushed into having to work at, you know, when they're not ready to, to go back to work. And that's where we have to really understand that. Long COVID is not like having a cold where, you know, you may have it for a certain period of time and then it's done. Long COVID is non-linear in nature. So there may be days when things are better and days when things are worse. And so there needs to be more flexibility at the workplace for people who are living with long COVID if they do want to re-enter the workforce or feel ready to, to ensure that the conditions are optimal so that they're able to do it in a way that still allows them to recover.
0: To that, on that point. Does our medical system recognize long COVID so that some of these people can sort of see a doctor or is there is there a sort of trust factor where employers have to sort of just be flexible?
1: Yes. You know, again, one of the issues of not having a diagnostic, you know, that we learned in our survey is that, you know, one quarter of those who responded said they had to go on disability, but of that, about half said they were unable to access disability insurance. So, you know, that's another issue if you don't have a diagnostic. And so it's not clear that this is a real illness. It's very difficult to then be able to say, well, i you know, here's a note that I need to take time off and I need to go on disability and I need to be insured for that. So this is why, you know, it comes back to we need to really understand that this is an illness. And just because we haven't yet been able to find a way to properly diagnose it doesn't mean it's not real. So in the interim, Employers have to be more understanding about people who do present with long COVID symptoms. And I can tell you one thing from everyone I've spoken to. Nobody wants to have long COVID. They would much rather be back at the workplace or, you know, fully with their families and their friends and their, you know, and their life that they had pre long COVID. This is debilitating, you know, for a lot of people, they can barely do one thing a day and they're exhausted. And so it's very hard to live that way.
0: Yeah. I want to just think about what some of the takeaways are for this. You mentioned we need a diagnostic so that we can say who actually has this and learn more about it, that we need longitudinal studies, and that we need these sort of multi-care clinics that can connect seemingly different illnesses that affect seemingly different parts of the body. Are are those the main takeaways?
1: Well, those are the main in terms of the, the path forward. And I would add to that is we need to continue to bring attention Two stories of people with lived experience because we have to counter the stigma that those who are, are, are not believed because the illness is not well-defined and not always properly diagnosed, you know, is leading them to not be believed. And we need to really think about having a national long COVID policy framework. Just to give you an example in contrast, in the US, the Congress has committed $1.15 billion over four years to fund research into long COVID. They have what's called the Recover Initiative. They've already enrolled 40,000 patients to study the effects of long COVID. And just earlier this month, their Department of Health and Human Services released a national research action plan on long COVID. In the UK, they've committed 100 million pounds to long COVID and more than 50 million pounds of government funding invested in research. So we're lagging behind in Canada, and while we've invested and committed $20 million through our own Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the investment is not tied to a comprehensive national strategy of research and care, and that's really what's needed. I'll I'll add one thing, though. I don't believe that what we need is more discussion and more consultations about what needs to be done. We know what needs to be done. What we need is really action. We We need to move quickly because we're already losing a lot of momentum. And as I said earlier, in the case of longitudinal work, that needs to start immediately. You know, if we, if we lose these people who may be recovering, they're now no longer motivated to be part of a study. We've now lost the baseline of population where we can actually study why do some people recover and others maybe don't. That's a really important question. Why will some of them potentially develop illnesses down the line or diseases down the line? These are all things that you need to monitor by looking at the full subset of people with long COVID.
0: It's a fascinating topic. I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me about this, Inez. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And can I just say one last thing? Because I know that we're getting into this COVID fatigue. Um, We can't leave behind people who are living with long COVID because it's not just their own health that's being affected. It's our economy, our labor force, and our society that are being impacted. So, uh, you know, recognizing that we're also tired of hearing about COVID. But, you know, for those who are continuing to live with the impact, uh, they need solutions and they need care.
0: Thank you, Inez. That was Inez Perwala, Global Director of Vinex, which stands for Viral Neural Exploration, an organization that looks at how viruses affect brain health. Thanks, as always, for listening to Down to Business and supporting us by sharing episodes and rating us on your listening app. And I'd like to send a big note of appreciation to Bryce Hall, who composed and performed the original music on the show, designed the logo, and produced this episode. Thanks as well to Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid for web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return next week with a new episode of Down to Business. Until then, you can find news about Canada's economy at financialpost.com.